Welcome to the Innovators Book Club. In each episode, we take a well-known book on innovation, discuss it, dissect it, and see what we can learn. In this episode, we're looking at the Innovator Solution. Let's get started. Welcome back, guys. So um, today we're looking at another Clayton Christensen book, uh, The Innovator Solution, which is the follow-up to his um, his massive runaway success, The Innovator's Dilemma. And uh, today, pretty pretty small group of people. So there's myself, Tim Woods in the UK. Uh, uh, Michel Meisterjan, where are you, Mitch? I'm in Bonn, as always, man. Just always. Uh, holding my ground here. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have Nanetta Koswick in Boston. Hi, everyone. Hello. And finally, we have uh, uh, Michael Avis in Denver, Colorado. Hello. <laughs> so, Michael, you're gonna you're yeah. gonna you're gonna chair this discussion, I think, because um, this book is uh, of particular interest to you. So, why don't you uh, guide us through? What's it about? Well, I think the interesting thing about this, to start off as a top level, is that you you already touched on it's it's a a sequel to the innovator's dilemma. Uh, the, the key thing to remember about this is that while the innovator's dilemma was set up to be a theory, uh, the sol innovator solution is set up to put it into practice, to try to show some ways in which the theoretical application uh, you know, uh, of the innovator's dilemma can be put to use and to show in places where management can take advantage of both being disrupted and disrupt themselves. Uh, to, to find out how certain products and services can be theoretically and analytically categorized so that they're practical. So here's, here's the, the rub. It's not quite as sexy because it is just a pragmatic approach. Um, so it, it didn't, I would say it didn't do as well, if you will. But what I like about the book and overarching is is that it is a practical application and it does break down some sort some sort of um, nuts and bolts, if you will. And I think that we can uh, take pieces from each of the chapters and, and talk about more of the not so not even in terms of just what the innovator's dilemma says about sustaining technology versus disruption or whether a company is a disruptor or or whatever but more about the you know breaking things down and the, the typical business case pieces right i mean every chapter breaks it down in a way that you would competitors you know products customers uh you know value chain so on and so forth so um i think that that's a that's really the, the the capstone here is that it's not quite as sexy so it's, it's the dilemma but it is practical and useful in many ways if you if you have the patience to go through it mm. okay um so maybe, maybe we could walk through a little bit get get a feeling for what it's about yeah i think uh let's let's start with mitch and mitch i think we talked about this um you were going to lead us off with the first couple of chapters and kind of go from there sure why not so um, the first chapter tackles the uh, growth imperative, right? This is basically the basics. So this chapter creates the backdrop for the following chapters. It's uh, the outset of the arguments that follow. Mm, so the key point is that um, companies have to grow, simple as that. Uh, they have to meet the expected growth rate just to keep their stock prices stable, and they have to exceed growth expectations to increase their share price. There are a lot of well-known examples out there about how badly companies uh, looking for growth failed, actually, and Christensen names, I think, AT&T and Cabot. So that led to the widely accepted notion that new growth business is simply uh, unpredictable. Um, you just have to, uh, to try and see what happens, basically. 
Now that Christensen doesn't accept, and uh, he says basically predictability is possible, and it derives from good theory. And now good theory comes in three steps. The first one is adequate description of the phenomenon. The second is classify the phenomenon into categories, while these categories must be collectively exhaustive and uh, mutually exclusive to lead to predictability. And third, and this one is crucial, you got to articulate a theory about the causal mechanics that lead to an outcome. And this theory must also be able to explain why and under which conditions the same mechanics lead to different outcomes for different categories of the phenomenon. So basically, he delivers a pretty convincing argument why this book is worthwhile reading. It's a practical good theory about how to get a new growth business right. So, and that leads me to chapter two then, uh, which already dives directly into um, the meat of it, how to beat competition. Um, the chapter describes strategies and actions to uh, deal with dangerous competition. What is the most dangerous competition? Right, disruptive new market entries you didn't even see coming. So uh, first of all, the author summarized the disruptive uh, innovation model he developed in the previous book, the, um, the innovators, um, what is it again? Dilemma. Dilemma, thank you. Um, so as a hit for the audience, uh, you can check out our former podcast uh, to get some details around the original disruption theory. But uh, just in a very few and simple words, it goes as follows. New market entrants address uh, either new markets or neglected customer needs in an existing market in a way that's finan fin financially not attractive to the incumbent companies, which is precisely the reason why these are not active in these market regions. However, once the market has matured and does become financially attractive, it's already too late and the entrants have taken over. So for Christendens, uh, there are three approaches companies can follow to grow. One is sustaining innovations, where you basically sell a high-end product to the most demanding customers in the market who are willing to pay the extra dollar for the perfect product, basically. Then you have um, two types of dis uh, disruptive approaches. Uh, one is the low-end disruptions, which Christensen already described in the Innovator's Dilemma, where the um, entrants address over-served customers with a lower-end, uh, with a lower-cost business model. And um, the other one is new market disruptions, where the entrants compete against non-consumptions of customers by offering a product or service that performs uh, lower in the traditional performance attributes, but much better in new, to, uh, new attributes, uh, typically simplicity or convenience. And uh, then the authors offers, uh, offer literally dozens of specific industries examples. For example, Amazon.com, which was a low-end disruption to, be, uh, to, establish, um, to establish bookstores. Well, that's chapter two. Then anyone else would go on? I will take uh, chapter three, but I do want to. I mean, I do want to ask you a question. Can we? Because I think it, it's one thing that I wonder. Maybe we can come back to this later. But it's the the primary thing here with the growth imperative. When you talk about the growth imperative, um, can you speak a little bit to what that means from the the theoretical and the the pragmatic application here? Um, speak to where that comes from? You mean the, the um, um, yeah, why, 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 companies why companies have to grow, basically? Yeah. <laughs> so um, he goes pretty deep into this whole uh, stock market theory. Um, and um, as I said, there's, um, there's this, this, um, this habit that, uh, that uh, as soon as they as they only reach their uh, expected growth rate, their uh, share price would go down. 
this, which means they have to continue to actually grow to just keep their stock price stable. They have to con uh, continuously uh, to surprise their um, investors, basically, positively, of course. And if they fail, and if they just do a good job, they already go down with the stock prices, their share prices um, sink, and um, they are a failure in the end. Is that that's that's exactly yeah you hit it right on and then that's the reason I was saying that is because it does even lead through it's it's a continuous piece all the way through to think that okay every business is being challenged for some level of growth even private industry is still being challenged the focal point here though for the for the theory application to really hold true is that there's this external pressure you don't own your business because this because the world owns your business and you are always being pushed to grow that's that's a fascinating um, you know, peace to hold on to, and you're talking about this, especially when you get into uh, chapters three and four, because in chapter three, it's the focal point is products. What what products will customers buy, right? That's what we need to look at. And the interesting thing that they, they come up with is it's not even new, but they've really elaborated on this concept of jobs to be done, that customers and consumers go to your product or service not because they, they think, you know, well, not even not, just they go to it because they figure out a job to be done. The, the classic, I, I think, is always, you know, people don't want a quarter-inch drill bit. They want a quarter-inch hole. So building on that to say what products we do have to build, and especially against a growth imperative, you're saying what products we have to use to grow our business, we, the, 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 the trap has always been to try to put more information into stuff, try to build out more features and functions, try to make the the automotive experience, you know, a, a car that's faster and and uh, or more powerful or more roomy, uh, bigger in cars or or maybe it's you know whatever it might be with any any product or service that we're offering here. Often the problem in when you're forced by growth imperatives and external forces. You can't. You, it's hard to focus on those areas where you could actually get growth started, um, and then that actually even leads into chapter four, where, okay, so now what customers? Who are the best customers that we can go for? So if you're looking for customers who need a job to be done, and people are using other products and services, whether they're yours or competitors, from a customer's standpoint, you have to get inside there and say, what do we? What kind of customers do we need? to look at, we're looking at those customers that are, again, always even where competition is not serving them properly, appropriately, satisfactorily. Um, he, it's that non-consumption that you mentioned already from, from two, from chapter two. What happens in, you know, in terms of products and customers we're putting together, customers, for jobs to be done, what can I just use and I'm not being served now? So. Uh, those are the customers we're going. To, those are the non-consumption, those low-end, the low-hanging fruit, the, those customers who are um, capable of having a job that they need to be done, but aren't not not necessarily being served right now. That you, that's where you look at how disruption can can be uh, executed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Let's let's. Well, maybe you know, Tim, maybe you can help out in terms of carrying that forward with the next chapters. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, I just want to jump in with one question before we, we dive into that. And um, I think chapter two, Mitch, that you spoke about, is quite an interesting one because 
it really goes back through all of the stuff from the innovator's dilemma i think one question if you haven't read either of these books is do you need to read the first book um, why not just read this book and does chapter two basically do enough to get you up to speed well i would i would say um that's exactly what you can do so like michael said in the beginning um the innovation the innovator solution is really a hands-on guidance on how to act upon the the original issue of the uh, innovator's dilemma. So the innovator's dilemma caused a lot of uh, discussion and was radical in 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 the way he presented this um, this whole uh, topic. However, when it comes to when it comes to uh, actually acting on this issue, uh, then the solution is all you need. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, one thing I noticed in this book is that he he starts off talking about disruptive innovation a lot, but as the book goes on, um, actually it starts to get much more specific, and you don't really notice him talking about disruption anymore um, as we go through the rest of the book. And certainly, starting from chapter five, um, he starts to get into the nuts and bolts of how to organize a business. So the chapter itself is called "Getting the Scope of the Business Right," and it's pretty detailed. But I think the um, the the basis of this is saying, you know that classic question of what should we do in-house and what should we outsource or work with suppliers on? And the traditional answer that comes up is usually what is our core competence? And if it's a core competence, we should do it in-house. And if it's not, we should outsource it. And he's saying, okay, th this is a very classic answer in business administration, but um, there's a huge problem here and it can lead to really disaster um, because what your uh, competencies are today might not be relevant to what the customer needs along their trajectory in the future. And he, he cites um, a number of examples. One is IBM. Who, uh, who basically said, okay, what's our core competence? It's assembling and building um, computers. So we really shouldn't care about the microprocessors and we really shouldn't care about the operating system. You know, these we can outsource. And of course it created Intel and it created Microsoft who um, together went on to basically <laughs> gobble up uh, most of the profits from the entire industry. Um, so, you know, IBM's mistake of thinking about what its core competencies were as a future strategy um, really destroyed uh, their market presence in that sense um, and generated two huge competitors. Um, so uh, he says, look, this can be really, really fatal, really dangerous. And it's it's about this idea. And he, he uses Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> the ice hockey player, um, as an example here of skating to where the puck is going to be, not where it is right now. And um, he uses that as an analogy to say, look along the trajectory of what the customer is trying to get done. And what things will they need in the future? Not now, but what things will they need in the future? And that's that's where you should base your decision on what should be in-house and, and shouldn't be. Um, and I think he admits that this is a really difficult thing to judge. So the, his whole book, his whole thesis around all of this is to create an intuition in a manager so that they have, you know, not concrete decision points that they can say, okay, is this in or out? But they actually have a stronger intuition for where the right decision might lie. Um, I think that's where he's getting at. So uh, he also then moves on to, um, he moves on in chapter six to talk, uh, to talk about how to avoid commoditization. Um, there's an interesting opening to this, which I like very much. And he says, the first one gigabyte, three and a half inch disk drives were introduced in 1992 um, that were at prices that allowed the manufacturers to get 60% gross margins. Um, but these days, and this is obviously, what, 10, 10 or more years ago now, disk drive companies are struggling to, to get 15% margins out on disk drives that are 60 times better than what they were at the time. So disk drives have become a commodity. And he's saying, okay, 
this process seems inevitable. It happens to everyone. Um, so is there really any answer? Uh, and he says that the, the good answer is that wherever commoditization is happening along this um, this value chain, should we say, there's always a process of decommoditization happening somewhere else along that process. Um, and if companies can move to where uh, the performance along this trajectory is not good enough for products, um, then they can capture future profits, um, which is quite a complicated thing to understand. Um, but he says it's like, again, it, it goes back to this point of seeing where um, the customer needs will be. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know if we want to get into it at this point, but the, he talks about this whole idea of integrated versus um, uh, versus modular architectures. And this is uh, where there's this, this shift um, up and down in the space where at one point the, the leading companies will be fully integrated. They will be proprietary. So like Apple, for example, they manufacture the hardware, software, and everything um, in-house um, <clears throat> and then he talks about as a market uh, as those products become um, good enough for the customer the market starts to shift towards um, modular architectures which by definition uh, provide weaker products but they provide more um, flexibility more plug-and-play more standardization and the market shifts back towards those again and there's always this process going backwards and forwards in a market space now I think there are real problems with this but maybe we should um, continue to wrap up the uh, the issues uh, that he's outlining through Nanetta, maybe? Do you want to pick up the rest? <clears throat> yeah, sure. So um, Chapter 7 is all about um, is the organization capable of disruptive, disruptive growth? And it's looking at do you have the right team and the right structure to enable this growth? And they look at three aspects of the organization. They look at resources, processes, and values, and they put this together into what they refer to as the RPV framework. And the idea behind is that is that established companies, they usually have the resources required to succeed at sustaining and disruptive innovations. However, when you look at the processes and the values that they have in place, that those actually keep them from succeeding with disruptive innovation. So in, in their framework, they, they look at two different things. They build a little matrix um, where you can plot where you are, and they look at the fit with the organizational processes and the fit with the organizational values. So um, where does your innovation lie? And in that, in that matrix, um, for example, if the innovation is a poor fit with the current values and a poor fit with the current processes, you can map out where it is. And in, in this case, you would need to handle your innovations in a separate organization so that you have different values and different cost structures so that you can do things differently than they're done in the main organization. And then also looking at the team, um, you need to have a team that is pulled out of their day job and what they usually do within the, the functional organization. And they need to be set up as a team independent that is free to build the new processes and is actually able to address the challenges that are specific to the disruptive innovations. And that's just one of the examples and depending on where your innovation lies in that matrix, um, you might get um, a different result. So you might be able to handle it in your organization and with your existing team um, depending on how it fits. So that's what chapter seven is all about. And then the, the next chapter is looking at managing the strategy development process. And here they start out with that most managers actually ask the question, okay, what's the right strategy here? And they point out that this is not really the question that you should be asking, but that you should actually ask how to find the right strategy. 
So they're looking at the, the processes that you need to have in place to identify the right strategy for disruptive innovation. And they describe two different processes, how to develop your strategy. So the one is the deliberate strategy, and this is the content and analytical process, the top-down process where senior management sits down, crunches a lot of data, and says, okay, this is now our strategy we want to follow. And the drawback of that is that there need to be a couple of conditions that are met for this to actually work this way. Um, and actually, it's, it's really, really difficult to be in a situation where all those conditions are met. So usually, um, you have the day-to-day the, the -day prioritization and decisions influencing your deliberate strategy, so you never really get to implement it exactly as it is, so you always have the deliberate, uh, the, the what they call the emergent strategy making, um, affecting your deliberate strategy. And this emergent strategy is actually what comes from your day-to-day -day prioritization, which is what bubbles up from your organization. It's the decisions done by middle managers or the sales staff that actually impact what your deliberate strategy is all about. And the whole idea is that if you are doing disruptive innovation, you don't really know what is going to happen in the future very well. So it's pretty much impossible to come up with a deliberate strategy that will work. So you need to start out with emerging processes to really define the strategy that you um, need to go with. And they refer to this as um, discovery-driven planning. And um, they, they contrast how you proceed for sustaining innovation so you can do the deliberate planning and work with your deliberate strategy where you basically you make certain assumptions, you define your strategy, um, build your um, financial plan, and then you implement it. That works well if you have sustaining innovations. And in contrast, for disruptive, disruptive, ah, disruptive innovations, they say that, that you need to take this discovery-driven approach. And hey, Ninetta? Yeah. That's, can we, I'm sorry to interrupt, I don't mean to interrupt, but um, uh, just in the sense of like, cause you, you said a couple of things that would really like take us to the to the point um, for the next pieces. I, I think that that's what we really need. Can then we can come back? Um, because I think what you're touching on is, is how the organization is constructed, and, and especially in terms of decision making and then managing the strategy is lockstep with, with the, the, the things that I wanted to, you know, we need to get to in the next chapters, but also then it allows us to kind of wrap this all in, you know, with a bow and get to the, the, the bigger questions of the uh, the value of the book, if that's okay. Um, do you have any, like, final couple points you want to make right here so we can move yeah, forward? Yeah, let me let me do one, one final point just to, to take a look at um, how is this discovery driven planning different because it also goes back a little bit, it reminds me of the, the, the lean start startup. So the, the idea here is that um, your, your your typical planning doesn't work with disruptive innovations and you need to tackle it differently. You need to um, come up with the financial projections first. So what, what do you need to get out of this? And then you need to look at the assumptions. Okay, which assumptions need to be true? And then you need to do this whole discovery driven process to approach this, where you actually come up with a plan to test this. And then you do this iteratively, and then based on that, you identify, okay, what could be a viable strategy? And at that point, you switch from this emergent mode to the deliberate strategy to actually make it happen. So at some point, you need to make that switch to the deliberate strategy to really see the results. 
That makes sense, and that, that helps. So I just, just I, I think that the, where you were, especially, really leads me into the next chapters because chapters, um, uh, chapters nine and ten, really get to corporate executive as the focal point and the audience. I think overall, and we can talk about who this book is written for, but for the most part, it just keeps stressing at the end to me is that we're we're talking about how executive management, corporate executives can. Uh, be aware of being disrupted, but also disrupt themselves, um, to becoming a disruptive business themselves. They have to first talk about funding, which what Chapter 9 talks about funding. I think the most salient point about Chapter 9 is, is the section where they talk about um, best money that you can raise, that what you're looking for in terms of the type of money. People talk all about just getting the money, but the, the focal really should be on the type of money that you want to get and invest should be patient for growth, but impatient for profit. That's actually counterintuitive, but actually tends to happen more often, which is the reverse, to be impatient for growth and patient for profit, in the sense that people are saying, give it away, uh, freemium models, get the brand out there, get the name out there, make it grow viral, everything else. We're, we're not worried about making money, we just want to get out there. The problem with that that they that they stress is that in doing it that way, uh, looking for non, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit thing, if, if you're able to build the profit margins with customers who are looking for specific jobs to be done in places where you can build products that are cheaper, faster, uh, you can still have that margin there. That allows your business to sustain that growth. Um, as opposed to the other, which says if you're if you're patient for profit, you never have any money, and people just keep pouring money into this, and then the problems start to compile on on all the strategic decisions. That is exactly the problem with the final chapter in which they discuss the role of senior executive. And this is like I think this is the, the capper on the whole book in saying we get to the end and talk about what does it mean to be a senior manager, uh, what is important about the role here is that you have to take the things that are uh, most important about finding target markets with target products, looking for jobs to be done in the marketplace, skating to where the business is, if you will. Um, and and let me just, uh, senior executives play four roles. This is from the, the summary of this chapter. First, they have to actually coordinate action. They have to make decisions that have, uh, where there are no process. They have to start thinking like entrepreneurs, even if they're in an established business space. They must break grip of established processes. That's the other, you know, other situation. A team is confronted with new tasks that require new patterns of communication and so on. These people who are, you know, pulled out of their day jobs to, and then told to go innovate and look for new markets, that's not always their core competency. Third, when recurrent activities and decisions emerge in an organization, executives need to create the processes to guide and coordinate the work of those people. This is new territory for them very often. And fourth, recurrent cultivation of new disruptive growth businesses entails building and maintenance of multiple processes, business models, new business models, uh, and senior executives need to actually kind of balance you know, how they're wa working between the existing businesses and keep things going in a sustaining model and still be able to look at disruptive challenges and drive those. So that has a lot to do with even how they funnel the money to those places and hold the line. So what we're wound up with here at the end is that this book is, is set up for senior executives in a practical way to take advantage of the theory of the innovator's dilemma. Michael, can I jump in? Um, <clears throat> so I just want to jump to a particular criticism here because um, 
one of the things it points at is uh, it says that it's assuming that consumers or buyers are rational. Yeah. So, and that's certainly true if you're B2B and you're buying, let's say, aircraft or big engineering or medical devices. Then on the buyer side, it's very rational. So when he's talking about whether a product is, is good enough or not good enough and how that whole setup is framed, assumes that the buyers are purchasing based on definable criteria and that they're rational about it. So if the price point is lower and if the performance is X, then okay, that's the decision. But I think in the B2C world, for sure, um, that's not the case. Buyers are not rational. And I think this is one of the reasons Christensen's always had trouble with Apple. Yeah. So he famously, um, actually I have a little quote here, and uh, maybe I can read it just to give some context. But yeah, when the iPhone was coming out, he said the iPhone is a sustaining technology relative to Nokia. In other words, Apple is leaping ahead on the sustaining curve by building a better phone. Um, but the pr prediction of the theory would be that Apple won't succeed with the iPhone. Uh, they've launched an innovation that the existing players in the industry are heavily motivated to beat, which is definitely true, um, but it's not truly disruptive. History speaks pretty loudly on that, that the probability of success is going to be limited. Now, it's kind of embarrassing to, to read these quotes, I think, because he, he's, and he said many different ones about the iPhone and the iPad as well and the iPod uh, and pretty much got them all wrong. And I think he struggles to understand that, Sorry, go ahead. But yeah, uh, so maybe I can jump in on this because um, I think I'm not sure whether it's whether I read it in an article or whether it's actually the um, the innovator's DNA. But um, he recently, well, after the solution for sure, um, he reframed that uh, statement about the iPhone, where he said regarding the phone industry, it's um, it's a sustaining innovation. However, what it is actually, what makes it actually disruptive is, is that it is not a phone at all. And eventually, it's actually disruptive to the um, to the um, personal computer market and laptops because it's the the one go-to device uh, to do everything. Basically, it's your it's your pocket computer, and that's that is what makes it uh, so disruptive. It's not a good phone or a better phone or a disruptive phone in any way. It's just uh, a, yeah, well, it's a good phone. That's it. Uh, I think I mean, you make yeah. a good point, but let me just, and sorry, I didn't mean to cut you, but uh, I, I, both of you guys, I mean, I think it's, it's a really important um, distinction because when, when you're talking about the dilemma as a framework for theory, which even the solution is talking about, uh, the interesting thing about it is that history might prove him right if Apple stumbles and We've, we're already kind of seeing that you know the street is questioning Apple's some, you know growth and, and new product and and so on. The, the thing is, is if, it, if in 10 years, 20 years, you know, you're like, well, see, there I was right. I just was ahead of my game. I mean, it's like um, what we're talking. But when you when you say the solution, just is trying to say, okay, what can we actually do with the dilemma as a theory? Then it works in the sense that it becomes a practical hand guide, a handbook, you know, a guideline. But critically speaking, I mean, you're exactly right. There's, there's, there's some problems here because it does speak more clearly to corporate executives only. And because the growth imperative is something that's driven uh, more by external forces and especially by publicly operated companies, especially bigger operating companies, how do you apply this in fact to smaller businesses? I mean, how do you apply this to, would you say that if you were a, a, a guy who owns, you know, three auto dealerships, it's, you know, it's, it's a business, how would you apply this if you're looking around and saying, oh, I'm worried about, you know, that lot or this type of car or whatever? It, it's, 
does the, the theory still hold? If you're just worried about your own private small business growth imperative, maybe not compared to growth at all. Yeah, well, I'm not I'm not uh, totally convinced because I think the size of business is not so important. The uh, role you have in is uh, much more important. And um, as you already pointed out, he explicitly says that um, the the book is targeted at senior. Um, senior management people who are charged with the task of creating new growth or who are in a position where they can actually change something principally in their business, um, which means if you're not in, in that kind of role, then the book simply can't help you probably. Mm, yeah, I think that's fair, but I, I just want to go back to the issue I was trying to raise, which I think um, I think doesn't really matter if you're a senior executive or not, because take Nike. So uh, you have senior execs at Nike that are worried about disruption, but what doesn't hold there is why should I go and spend 120 bucks on a on a pair of Nike trainers when I can definitely go and get a suitable performance equaling <laughs> product for 20 or 30 bucks. And this brand problem or the emotional side of things, the irrational side of the buyer, I think is a real problem here. It doesn't fit the theory very well. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, that's, again, that's what I get back to is the funny thing is that it becomes like Teflon, right? I mean, the theory, the theory party in particular becomes like Teflon, it, it just keeps being, well, it's valid. It's it's still valid. It's um, I can say, well, yeah, Apple could still struggle, and I, that makes the theory correct. I I do think, you know, when you're talking about, is it, is it let's, let's go back to basics. Is the book relevant? Would we recommend this book? I would think from our standpoint, I, I see, I know what you're saying about Nike, and I know what you're saying, uh, but even then, the, the, the explicit bigger audience is about corporate executives who are tasked with these things and say, where do I get growth? That nine times out of 10 still comes from the street. And it's, it's, it's always this growth imperative. He, he doesn't come. We, one thing we didn't talk about, for example, is the concept of overshooting. Um, we didn't really, we didn't say, we didn't bring it up in the summary, but I think it, it, it's one of those pieces where when you talk about the growth imperative, being driven by external forces that you don't control in your own business, no matter where you live, but especially as executive, uh, executive manager, uh, when you say, okay, how are we going to enhance our product this year? And you just throw a bunch of things on a roadmap. We see that with software companies all the time, for example, how much more functionality that overshoots the market. I think this is there's some nice pieces that can be practical about saying, wait, don't over product, but in fact find new customers, new markets in which they're being underserved by the existing established competitors. I think that that and then looking at how you could do that becomes a little bit different way and because it becomes counterintuitive. I mean everybody that's chasing after VC in, in uh, Silicon Valley is saying the same thing. Get it out there. Do the freemium. You know? and, and he's, say, he's saying exactly right. Those cycles, have we seen how many companies crash and burn by do, being very famous but no profit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I like that very much. Actually, you know, I don't want to be negative about it because I think it's a brilliant book. Um, I just think this this problem of the brand or the emotional side of things is tricky to fit into the theory. But everything else is is very solid and great. So I don't know if we want to sort of give an appraisal of it, Michael, but um, I mean, the, there's really a, a ton of takeaways from this that are very practical and very useful. That's just it. It's, it's, it's the, um, you know... The dilemma is nice for being able to have a very passionate discussion if you're, you know, theoretical and you're, you're passionate about innovation and business. 
whereas this is harder to get across in the sense that it's it's you know, it's core elements, it's nuts and bolts, it's you have to roll up your sleeves, you have to get a little dirty and have to get a little scraped up working under the hood. So it's not as fun because it takes some discipline to get your, you know, your mind around the, the points that they're making. And some of them, because they are counterintuitive, probably even makes it more difficult on those people who are specifically targeted here, you know, to make those kinds of decisions to, oh, my best guy, my best manager is doing so great in this world over here, I'm going to make him the manager of the new product line, and then he fails, and you blame the new guy. Uh, but that wasn't his core competency. You know, you didn't set him up for success because you didn't follow the things that this, you know, nuts and bolts, you know, um, practical handbook establishes. Mm -hmm. That's why I'd say the recommendation would be quite different. You have to be willing to accept that it's not easy. There's no magic wand here. He's actually being very practical in a tough in a tough way. Yeah, I've got I've made a list of all these like little um, sort of rules or, or tips that he adds, and there's some really great stuff in here that we haven't even touched on. Like, um, for example, it's a lot easier to to frame something as a threat and get backing for it than it is an opportunity. <laughs> so internally to win favor, if you can say that you're being threatened, you know, disruption, it's actually easier to get funding for your project than it is to say, hey, let's seize, seize the opportunity there. Um, I love the thing about being patient for growth. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, but impatient for profit. That's um, a really great section overall. And uh, I really I like the bit where he was talking about how to hire the right people. Um, and he's saying often we always hire because it's like, okay, have they been successful with the product launch before? And that's completely wrong. Actually, you want somebody that might have failed before, but learned from the experience. And you know, he gives a general rule that is appoint people for their ability to learn, not their track record. Um, and a lot of good detail around that as well. The, the stuff Nanetta spoke about, the emergent strategy and disruptive, um, uh, sorry, deliberate strategy is also really good. I don't know, I've got tons more, but um, I don't know. Anyone else want to chip in with anything? <clears throat> no? I can keep going. Oh, well, <laughs> well, Nanetta, are you still there? Because he, he just touched on your emergent and versus deliberate, and I thought um, – you, you did a really good job, you know, that, at that very critical juncture there, and I thought those there's some key takeaways as well. Um, how would you feel about uh, recommending this book to to somebody that you're uh, that you're working with, or or even internally? I liked it. I, th I think you, if you started with a solution that you can skip the dilemma, because here you get the the hands-on advice, versus the other one is more um, theory. You need to be in a in a position though to be able to make those decisions. So um, if you need to have somebody establishing a new team independent from what the main organization is, is doing, that's probably a little hard to get approved. Um, so you really need to be in, in a position to have that power to to make those decisions and to to appoint those people and then give them the, the freedom that they, they need to succeed with that because it's it's different than what they've potentially been doing previously. So you would recommend this to uh, to a client or a colleague? Yeah, I would. For, for innovation managers, especially on, 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 on higher levels, I think it's really helpful because it has a lot of um, really hands-on insights that, that um, you can apply. So the, the you pointed out the strategy part, so the whole discovery-driven planning, I think that's helpful, and it reminded me very much of the, the Lean Startup, because it's a, 
a similar approach. And um, there's, there's a ton of other insights, and, and Tim listed so many um, of them. Um, so there are the whole jobs to be done, and, and, and milkshake example. It gives you a couple of really good ideas how to how to think about how to tackle this. The one thing I, I think that's great, thanks, and and I would recommend too. The one thing that was interesting to me is I, I, I keep running up against this. For example, is especially in the chapters you were talking about, and and I think. Tim, you, Tim and Mitch can both speak to this. Is that that interesting political aspect of telling a manager who's done a great job or looking at a track record, um, but hasn't necessarily been entrepreneurial in the past, um, putting them in a new situation? I, I, I would look at that and say, oh, there's also the uh, the the clear cases in which there's sort of a converse effect. In other words, something that's been set up. Uh, in a, maybe by executive management is sort of a, a, the new disruptive part of the business, uh, bringing somebody new in uh, in the middle um, for any reason at all becomes its own sort of political question mark and you, uh, very interesting to look around and say, where has, for example, where you've seen transition in, in a middle management positions change the direction of that vision? Because, for example, if, if it had one vision, when it was initiated, but uh, nine months, a year down the road, um, there's a transition at the, at the middle management of that particular area, and that person is tasked with using the same information, but realizes, you know, there's a certain realization that if this fails, I'm going to be blamed, but if it succeeds, it's going, it's not going to be on my credit, right? It's going to be on what was already established. So. They don't. They don't talk about that much, but you know these failure points have to be part of the considerations, especially when you're talking about as a you know a practical approach for employing the theory and then taking things like that, outlying pieces like that into into account as well. Tim, Mitch, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I guess we're sort of wrapping up a little bit, are we? So I, I just yeah. wanted to I just wanted to say actually, circling back that um, you know one of the criticisms that's often given to business books is that they're just fluff and actually they could have just been an article and that would have sufficed and maybe not even that for most of them. Uh, and there is a lot of rubbish out there for sure. And I think that that's something to be praised here is that this book is not fluff and it's also not the dissertation style that he had in The Innovator's Dilemma. And you very much got the feeling that those those three case studies in The Innovator's Dilemma were just labored a little bit too much. Whereas in this book, there are lots of little examples, You know, the one from Sony I really like in particular. Um, and, and there's tons spread throughout the book, but it's it's really not fluff. Every chapter is very focused. It's not too academic. It's very practical, and I think that it should be really highly praised for that. And the only tough thing I find with it is that it does feel a little bit dated now. Um, so a lot of the theory is still good, but there is stuff in there about RIM, you know, BlackBerry, and it's kind of it just feels very very dated. And it also lacks anything around Google or Uber or any of these new newer examples that would be really interesting to talk about in his context of the theory. I would love to see somebody um, just do an article in Harvard Business Review or something that just takes the theory and says, let's just have a, a look at it in today's environment. How does it still stand up? That would be really fascinating to me. But I think overall the book is is solid. It's a great, great read. And um, like we said earlier, I think you don't need to read The Dilemma if you just pick this one up. Chapter 2 just, just gives a great summary of it. So, um, Mitch, I don't know. What, what's your thoughts? <clears throat> no, I totally agree with what you said. Um, so what I really like, I mean, similar to the, to the Dilemma, you provide a lot of real-life examples, many more actually than in The Dilemma. 
And um, what I really liked about it is, though, that even without these real-life examples, his theory is really well-structured and convincing. It's just, it's just straight. You just believe him as he, as he lays it out. And that's what I really like about it. Yeah, that's great. And and uh, honestly, we didn't even we didn't even touch, but we I think we did in summarizing. The 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 epilogue is called passing the baton. What do you do now? Who who me use theory? You know, uh, how do you apply these things? How do you take these things? And I think Tim, you're you're right on. And maybe you should write that article. At least start it as a blog. Maybe you'll get picked up. Um, taking that that approach because I do think that that's one thing that we continuously have to do is it is it still relevant if it if it is still relevant uh, how does it get you know you know how do we adapt it and, and continue to massage it and shape it and I think uh, from a from a summer standpoint I think you, you touched on all the main points I I think the one thing that we have to keep in mind is just who's who it's for where it's where it's going to require some more diligence it's like I said it's it's much different than the dilemma and also what it leads us to next and uh, I guess we're going to come up against the uh, innovators the DNA in our next in our next case so I our next podcast so I think this is going to be a good uh, jumping point to what we look at in that one mm, absolutely yeah all right guys let's bring it to a close so thanks for the discussion and like you said, Michael, next time we'll be looking at the uh, the innovators' DNA to to complete this uh, trilogy of Christensen books. So, thanks very much. It's bye from the UK. <laughs> Goodbye from good old Germany. <laughs> and from Boston. <laughs> and from Denver. Bye, everyone. <laughs> See you guys. Bye bye.